0: One reason why eugenics fell into disrepute is because of antibiotics. It's also historically inaccurate to even think of the Nazis as eugenicists. And if something like eminence is inherited, that opens up all these intriguing possibilities that you might be able to create a tremendously talented race through selective um, breeding. Uh, He did talk about um, race uh, in Hereditary Genius. Mm -hmm. It was not a major focus of his. uh, The modern usage of race, black versus white, that was not a major focus of his at all because there weren't any blacks in England. He didn't have black subjects to deal with. Welcome to the Aporia Podcast. This week, Beau Weingart speaks with Gavin Trudeau. Remember, you can listen to this podcast on all the major platforms. If you like the show, you love the Aporia Magazine. Find the link in the show notes, along with our Twitter, and a link to the bonus questions we ask
1: our guests. Hi, this is Beau Weingart with Aporia Magazine, and today I am with, and I'm going to butcher this, even though you just told me what it was off-camera, Gavin Trudeau. Trudeau. So, you can correct me when I'm done with this, who is a fellow of the Royal Anthropological Institute and a scholar with interests in evolution, behavioral genetics, differential uh, psychology, Cyril Burt, J.B.S. Haldane, for example, and the person whom we are going to talk about today, Francis Galton. Thank you for joining me, and please correct my butchered pronunciation. Yeah, it's Trudeau. Okay, thank you. So I'm going to ask some sort of vaguer, open-ended questions, and then we can get into more specific details. So first, um, what attracted you to Francis Galton?
0: Well, back in 1994, when The Bell Curve was published, I started reading about intelligence because of all the controversy. And the first thing I resolved to do was to try to read the original sources because there were all these accusations flying back and forth about what was being accurately um, presented and what wasn't. So I went for the original sources, and among the original sources was Francis Galton. Then I discovered it was extraordinarily hard to actually find anything by or about Galton. Um, His books were, were mostly long out of print. I was living in Cape Town at the time, so they were even harder to get hold of. Um, So consequently, I started scratching around, digging deeper and deeper. And then I realized there was this major figure who was more or less neglected um, by history of science. Every other year, another book comes out about Charles Darwin, every aspect, including his dogs, his flowers, um, everything about Darwin. uh, And a a giant and truly stupendous correspondence series, um, which is excellent. And there was nothing for Galton. And then, of course, I dug up um, a, a notable biography by Carl Pearson, which I could not get hold of. Um, the life, letters, and labors of, of Francis Galton in four volumes, um, folio-sized. So eventually I got a copy of that. And then I decided, well, I need to do something to, to write this injustice. We've got this tremendously interesting character that nobody seems to know about let's make information available. And of course, the internet had been going for a while and I was well-versed in in creating internet sites. So I started Galton.org. And my first objective was to make everything Galton had written available, which was a very ambitious goal, um, given that much of it was so hard to get hold of. And this was before the days of Google Books or um, the internet archive. So I got hold of all of his books and scanned them and uploaded all those scanned books to the site. And then I scanned Carl Pearson's life of Francis Galton, which took me a while, <laughs> and several thousand pages. <laughs> and I made that available too. And then I set about tracking down every single memoir, paper or other substantial mention in the journals, the uh, Victorian journals. Um which opened up another whole can of worms because the bibliographies were incomplete and riddled with errors, as all bibliographies are.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so I decided I was going to write that wrong and add the bibliography to the website. And I correct all the errors by simply finding the originals. That's the best way to correct errors in a bibliography is find the originals. So that, this took me several years, um, tracking down all this material, making it available and making it searchable. Mm -hmm. So today, if you go to Galton.org, you will see all this material there. And the first objective was met some time ago, which is to make all the published material um, by um, Galton available. And of course, Pearson's biography. I must say something that's interesting. Uh, I initially thought that I would try to um, compile a bibliography of notable scholarship, but I was grievously disappointed because... Most of the scholarship that I came across wasn't very good, um, not especially helpful or informative. <laughs> right. Um, the way scholarship has evolved these days, these topics have become a pretext um, for discussing mm-hmm. whatever it is that the author would like to discuss. Right. Critical theory, postmodernism, um, querying this, that, or the other, <laughs> and consequently, yes. I, there wasn't enough of that for it really to be interesting.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so my first objective was met. Uh, to make all this stuff available and known. And, you know, I got wide exposure um, because Science Magazine covered it uh, Mm -hmm. in 2005. And over the years, of course, I've had floods of inquiries from people about Colton. Then my next objective was uh, to write a biography because there is no modern biography um, that I considered worthy. Uh, In 2001, Nicholas Gillum, a geneticist um, published a biography through Oxford university press, but I was disappointed in that the previous biography by Derek Forrest, which came out in 1974 was pretty good, Mm -hmm. but limited, very short, Mm -hmm. punchy, um, but left out a lot of material. And before that, there was this behemoth biography by Carl Pearson, which nobody has, almost nobody has read. And, um, at the time when it was published, the comment was that Pearson had buried his subject under his tome. Um, <laughs> it's just so substantial. Um, working through it is a, a labor of love, mm-hmm. just as writing it must have been. Mm-hmm. And I, I've worked through it several times myself. So I thought we need a modern biography. And more importantly, we need a biography that's based on original sources. Um, go back to the original sources take nothing for granted, trust nobody and, and no statement, check everything, um, try and unearth all this material. So that of course, that took me to the Galton papers at University College London. They have a tremendous archive of Galton material which w- was assembled by Carl Pearson when he was still at UCL. So my first mission was to ingest that material. I, I've been there many times um, to London um, and to the British Library and all the other archival sources I could find, including down in Cape Town, uh, Library of Congress. Um, I've searched the archives far and wide to track down all the golden manuscript material um, that's suitable for 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 basing a biography on. So I've spent, I guess, the last 20 plus years on this endeavor to ingest all this material, and then I finally got around to writing it up about five, six years ago. And the project just kept on expanding as a result. So where it sits right now, I've completed the biography, which is in two substantial volumes. It comes to about 1400 pages. Wow. And then I've got seven supplementary volumes. <laughs> um, wow. So it, there's a lot of material and, and yeah. I'll tell you why I did that. Okay. Um, my experience when when going after history of science material has been that people's opinions are not that useful to me. Mm-hmm. So w- when I read somebody, uh, you know, opinionating about this or that subject, you take it with a grain of salt. Sometimes it's insightful and useful. Very often it's not. It's somebody grinding an ax. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got the distinct impression that the most valuable thing someone who works in the history of science can do is make primary material available. hmm it's hard work going to archives, um, it's even harder work transcribing stuff from barely legible handwriting, um, often from, you know, in different copies. And it's valuable to people to make that material available because then a big hurdle has been overcome. And then at least you've done that. So people may disagree with your opinions. Mm-hmm. That's fine. You, you can't operate without opinions. But the primary material um is is something of value so that includes transcribing diaries letters um every every scrap that um that proves to be be relevant and interesting and that's really what those those seven supplementary volumes are about and Mm -hmm. i've really released those on the internet Mm -hmm. anybody can download them and and read them because they would never be published as a traditional book, because they're just too substantial. Right. Um, these days, getting that kind of material published, um, you'd have to pay for it yourself. Really it right. would cost a substantial amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, the two completed volumes, the main biography to which those are a supplement, they're awaiting publication. Um, so I've got to find a publisher. And of course, it's, um, it's a difficult climate in which to publish material about a character like Francis Galton mm-hmm. who's been under siege yeah, lost 10 years um, yeah. at UCL and places
1: like that. Yeah, so I thought, like, we could ask this question before getting into his myriad accomplishments. Why is the... I mean, it sounds like you've had, essentially, this intellectual dalliance with Golan. Well, more than a dalliance, a love affair, a long one. <laughs> but why is the... Why is the material about him so spotty, as it were, whereas, you know, there's a new book about Darwin every day? And in many ways, I think you you can make this argument, Galton may be more more important for human psychology in many ways. So why is it that so many people seem to have so little interest in him? Well, Galton was an an hereditarian. Um, He believed that
0: um, human traits are heritable and um, most controversially he founded what he called the science of eugenics and eugenics has fallen on hard times um, up until quite recently in 1969 there was a eugenics society in england they proudly called themselves the eugenics society they had a substantial membership list um, granted it peaked a long time before that but they still had many substantial members including people like julian huxley and Mm -hmm. and leading scientists right into the 1960s. But after that, um, they renamed themselves the Golden Institute. And you can tell by the fact that his name was still worth something that that wasn't bad. But by about the 1990s, early 2000s, I'd say, things had become really rough for anybody associated with eugenics Mm -hmm. Um, because that's how political correctness has gone. So consequently fewer and fewer people would stick their necks out, um, to deal with a subject like that. So the, the irony is that when you look at at topics like heritability race and so on, Darwin and Galton
1: had essentially the same opinion. Yes. Yes. I was, I was just going to ask you that. Didn't Darwin essentially share his views? Absolutely. Um, so consequently,
0: um, When you say go to a place like Down House today, outside London, Darwin Museum, um, they've got this apologetic um, little description up on the wall about how, sure, it's true that Darwin was in favor of eugenics, um, but they had a very carefully worded uh, qualification of that. Um, And it doesn't occupy much space in in the writing about Darwin. But the difference is that with Galton, eugenics was his creation. Mm -hmm. And he wrote vast amounts of material about it whereas with darwin it was something he agreed with and you'll you'll find passages in his books about it but it wasn't his primary contribution to the world um there's a difference of emphasis there yeah um but truly there's there's not much space between the two of them particularly on subjects like race Mm -hmm. they believed in roughly the same um worldview about race
1: yeah so that do you think i mean this is I mean, I'm asking you to prognosticate, but that's okay. Do you (laughs) think, one thing I've thought about is, will Darwin eventually become besieged in the way that Galton is, or will intellectuals always figure out a way to keep Darwin out of that somehow?
0: That's a good question. I don't know. Um, I can tell you he's becoming more and more besieged. Mm Mm-hmm. but what, what I think saves him, it's very important for the um, non-religious left to have a figure like Darwin as their, their their figure to cling to, really, something to build on. And consequently, that means that they, they have to guard him um, mm-hmm. from the point of view of, of counteracting creationists and so on. Yeah. And there are critical books written about Darwin and the Darwin family, particularly his sons. But they're typically written by creationists and and people from that religious angle because his sons were even more forthright eugenicists than he was. I mean, Leonard Darwin, his son, Major Leonard Darwin, was the chairman of the Eugenics Society. Um, And and his other sons also made um, major contributions in their own right. So it looks like that anti-religious readout, if you like, um, is what's what's keeping um, Darwin kind of protected. But you can see signs um, that they've been trying to go after him. They're going after Huxley, mm-hmm. um, who was a notorious, I suppose he would be notorious today, but he was a forthright sort of um, race realist in his time, uh, which is not uh, commonly appreciated. So all these people seem to be coming under attack. And I wouldn't predict which one of them
1: would ever escape the current madness because it's <laughs> right. gone so far yeah that that seems judicious but you make it that's an interesting point because you're right a lot of the people who uh vituperate against darwin are religious people and therefore the left almost feel the need to protect him to protect their sort of tool that they wield against religion so that is interesting so Galton had he was a polymath, so he had so many contributions. but maybe let's limit this to get listeners who don't know Galton a sense of how important he was. What were his major accomplishments that are relevant for say, human psychology and behavioral genetics?
0: Well, sticking to just those subjects, um he founded behavioral genetics. Mm-hmm. Every single major idea that is current in behavioral genetics and has shaped its course since um, 1900, say, uh, was present in Galton. He died, of course, in 1911. Um, so, starting, of um, course, with the study of human traits like intelligence, um, which is the you know that's the trait he tackled first, all the way through the use of um, quantitative methods, the the normal distribution. Um, the study of, of families and pedigrees, um, adoptions, twins, all the major tools of behavior genetics are present in Galton and were comprehended by him. Um, but what he had to do, which is, uh, I mean, a fascinating part of the whole story, is he had to bootstrap behavior genetics from scratch. So he understood that uh, traits are heritable. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where, that was his viewpoint right from the very beginning. The minute he read on the origin of species, um, he realized, but wait, um, there are all these human behavioral traits. Behavioral traits are just like physical traits. They're heritable. Evolution doesn't stop at the neck. Yes. So if they're heritable, how do we find out what the laws are that govern their, um, their heritability? How are they inherited? Um, can you can you write down laws describing that? Um, but to find that out, we first have to be able to measure these traits. How do you measure them? They're continuous traits. How do you measure intelligence? That's a very difficult problem that people still struggle with today. Mm-hmm. Um, so he came up with all these ingenious ways um, to measure intelligence. In his case, he started with um, preeminence. How preeminent are people? Um how well are they rated by their contemporaries and by history? Um, but you can't stop there because it's it's hard to get data on that. So that became his second problem, which is it's really two, two related problems. Find a range of traits that can be measured and find ways to gather data containing those measurements. And that's the research program that he instituted starting at about 1869. Um, and the use of surveys and opportunistic use of whatever um, related data you could find. I'll give you an example. Um, He found data from sources such as um, um, a tailor who used to weigh his customers um, just on a whim. So he found all these historical records of what people used to weigh. So then he got interested in things like weight and height and how you could try and work out the laws of heritability for you know, simple physical traits like that, but he didn 't stop there um, we 're talking about an extremely ingenious man mm-hmm. he believed he could measure just about anything, including the imagination, um, resemblance between people uh, anything um, that 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 anything was almost fair game to him, and he found all these ways that he could he could approximate measurements so behavior genetics today um, <clears throat> If you read any um, uh, well-clued-up um, source on it, uh, every behavior geneticist acknowledges his debt to Francis Galton. Um, the other amazing thing about Galton, I find, is how often he was right.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Darwin was 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 right most of the time too, but he was often wrong about things, particularly in his. Um, his enthusiasm for acquired characters, for example, which he got he got more and more soft yeah. <laughs> about as the years went on. Yes, <laughs> and he kept on updating the Origin of Species to include acquired characters. Galton was right, in my estimation, about almost everything. Mm-hmm. Um, consequently, I give this. Take some examples. Say the relationship between brain size and intelligence. Yes, um, Galton was a strong believer um, that uh, brain size was you know, related to intelligence, it's, it just made intuitive sense to him. Mm-hmm. Of course, he only had proxies like um, circumference of the head. Right. So he got all these measurements for circumferences of heads. He had his own observations in Royal Society meetings, and he hypothesized that there was, you know, a substantial relationship. Karl um, Pearson, who became his acolyte and was a, a noted statistician in his own right, disagreed with Galton about head size and intelligence. Um, if you read Pearson's biography of, of Galton, it has a number of very dismissive statements, and he published you know critical papers about it um, in the 1900s too. Uh, but Galton was right. Mm-hmm. The modern data shows that there is a relationship. If you only correlate, say, head size with intelligence, intelligence, um, it's a moderate correlation, but if you take MRI scans mm-hmm. and you really try to get straight to brain volume um, without the extra error term that the head circumference um, introduces and you, and you look at adults rather than children, the correlation is about 0. 0.4, which is substantial. Um, so that's a good example of how a you know, major preoccupation of, of modern behavior genetics of intelligence is the crown jewel of all traits studied by by behavior genesis in the last 100 years. Uh, Galton was right about that. But then I mentioned correlation earlier. He invented correlation. Right. So this is part of his whole bootstrapping. He had to go after traits, find ways to describe them and measure them, and then invent the tools you could use to analyze the data that he'd collected. That's
1: exactly what he did. He ended up inventing
0: Regression and correlation—it's
1: both due to him. Amazing achievements. Now, what you've said raises two thoughts. So, one is: do you, do you get this sense? I got this sense in the only behavior genetics class I was ever able to take um, that there was almost an apologetic embarrassment that galton was the founder of behavior genetics <laughs> it was Like they, they had this idea yeah galton did some things whatever like we apologize for his eugenics etc let's move on that's one thing and then the other thing is this circumference this head size brain size argument which if you're thinking from the perspective of natural selection is almost like inevitably follows because why would you waste uh, tissue on a brain if it didn't do something. But it also illustrates how politically incorrect Galton is now because these were just scientific questions to him. And today, I can just imagine somebody talking about getting out the calipers, phrenologies coming back, you know? So do you do you get that sense in behavior genetics that yeah, this guy founded it, but we're kind of embarrassed by that. And like even like a plowman, you know, he wants to give appropriate credit to him, but like, yeah, we're we're not doing what he was doing. We're more morally enlightened.
0: Yeah, increasingly, that's the case. Um, you can even date it by, if you go through all the behavior genetics textbooks, uh, which I've done. Oh, interesting. You, you can even find um, the inflection point. So the founding modern text for behavior genetics is Fuller and Thompson mm-hmm. um, from the 1960s. I think the first edition was 1960. Um, if you consult even a reprint from 1967, um, which I have a copy of, There's absolutely no apology in there, even for eugenics. It's described in purely neutral terms. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no attempt at any apology whatsoever. and, And Gorton is described accurately. But from the 1970s, the radicalization that set in in the 60s, it started its long march, as they call it, through the institutions. And you can trace in the textbooks how that starts to leave its mark. And things get increasingly skewed. But still, even in textbooks, say on evolution, I have a great um, book by Francis Ayala on population genetics from 1982,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: which gives a completely accurate description of both eugenics and Galton, even at that late date. Um, So a lot of this anti-Galtonian stuff is is a more recent vintage. Mm -hmm. And I think it's probably accurate to say that it's gaining steam. People are becoming more and more bashful. Um, about their heritage, and um, i 've certainly noticed that, but i don 't think it 's warranted I think it 's a mistake. Um, I think we ought to take the approach of anthropologists you know and this is the ironic thing about these developments is the defining characteristics of anthropology um, the, it's, its its leading idea is when you approach another culture not to try and evaluate it using your standards um, by saying things like, well, these guys are just a pack of savages because they eat livers or whatever, or brains. Um, Your first responsibility is to give an accurate description of what you're seeing and try to understand things within their frame of reference. And that's not what happens today in the history of science. Um, People do not attempt to understand Galton within his frame of reference they don't even understand his use of the word race, which he did not use in the way that people use it um, today. Um, he used it in an entirely different sense. And consequently, um, a lot of the of the rubbishing of Galton comes from this unscientific attitude that they're taking to the history of science, being judgmental and using it as a proper in their, in their own political arguments, which poisons the well. So consequently, mm-hmm. people in behavior genetics They feel themselves under siege. They don't want to spend all their time apologizing to Galton because, (laughs) let's face it, I mean, Galton's interesting. He's part of their history, but no result in behavior genetics depends on Francis Galton. Right, right, right. Because the data is constantly renewed. All our modern data—you could throw away anything before 1960; it wouldn't make the slightest difference. Yeah. So so consequently, they feel like, why should I spend all my time defending somebody? And I've got all this great data that people should just be listening to.
1: Right. Concentrating yeah. on the science
0: rather than the politics.
1: Yeah. And that, so they're throwing to the wolves, right? The right. It's
0: not worth their while.
1: Yeah. And that, that is understandable if, if one's not like particularly interested in the you know the history of ideas or something for its own sake. So let's talk about that then. So you said something there. You said um, Galton's understanding of race is, is it's not the same as our modern understanding or at least some people's modern understanding. what would you say was Galton's idea of race? And then like, what were some of his views that now, I mean, so like if you look at Wikipedia, for example, it will tell you that he was the founder or one of the founders of what they call derisively race science. (laughs) So let's talk about what was Galton's view of race and then what were some of his beliefs about it?
0: Well, Galton used the word race in roughly the same way that Charles Darwin did. Um, A race is a breeding group. Um, where the the limit of that breeding group is very flexible. It depends on what you're interested in. Um, Jews can be a breeding group. Schoolmasters can be a breeding group if they they inbreed. Anything that inbreeds can become a race Mm -hmm. in Galton's usage, as it was for Darwin. Um, Of course, the races that we're familiar with, whites, blacks, and so on, they also qualify um, at a very coarse resolution. So it was a flexible word. So often people, uh, Galton will be using the word race when he means roughly what we would mean by genetic. Mm-hmm. So he'd say a trait is racial. What he means by that is it's, it's heritable. Mm-hmm. So, of course, in the modern context, when you say a trait is racial, people immediately think, oh, that's a white, black thing. Right. Um, which is roughly to confuse a theory of mountains with particular mountains that you know about. So yeah. whenever anybody mentions yeah. mountains, you start, oh, you mean Everest? No, right. no, I mean mountains. I don't, Everest is an example of a mountain, uh, and so on, and and that allows you to comprehend the hills as well. So it, it's roughly the same situation. It's a much more flexible, intelligent use of the word race. And when you look at the origin of species, of course, you know, race is in the title right there, mm-hmm. favored races. Um, Darwin was using it in roughly the same sense as Galton.
1: Yeah, so Stephen Saylor calls it an extended family, basically, which is another way of saying that. And I think it's important to note that there's this weird, often imputed conception of race that's this sort of platonic, discrete category that supposedly all these race scientists held, and they did not. I mean, this is a very, what would you say, loose, flexible definition, right? Yeah, it's non-dogmatic and in
0: their day, not in the least controversial. Right, right. Every single one of their fellows used the word in roughly the same way. I mean, mm-hmm. There were variances. People weren't always clear what they – what they, 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 they didn't really always know what they were talking about. But um, the, the, the usage is consistent enough to be understood today if you make an effort. Right. And, and it's un- unfortunate that this – this has all become mixed up with American politics. Really, this whole white-black <laughs> thing—that's yes. an American politics thing. It didn't even used to be an English thing because um, they didn't really have a lot of other races until quite recently. Um, so it's become all mixed up now, and it's hard to it's hard to pin meaning down precisely as a result. To
1: to to be fair, I suppose what a critic might say is, "Well, look, I've read Galton, and Galton does make statements comparing different racial groups, right? So, for example." I think he he predicted or said that, um, I, I don't know what his nomenclature was, but like what we would call African Afri- Africans, like sub-Saharan Africans, think he estimated that they were two standard deviations less intelligent than Europeans or than British. Is that a correct statement, that that was his estimate? Well, two of his grades, and yeah. his grades
0: weren't standard deviations, they were a bit smaller, so it would okay. be about 15 IQ points. In modern terminology uh, he did talk about um, race uh, in hereditary genius mm-hmm. it was not a major focus of his if we, right. uh, the modern usage of race black versus white that was not a major focus of his at all because there weren't any blacks in england he didn't have black subjects to deal with it was more of an aside in one of the last chapters of hereditary genius and based on on um His own first-hand experience, because before he got to behavior genetics, he was, in fact, an African explorer in his own right. Mm -hmm. He explored southwest Africa uh, on a two-year expedition, which he paid for himself, and that really founded his scientific reputation. So he had first-hand experience. He had varying views on different races. So to illustrate how flexible his usage was, he would call the um, Athenian Greeks a race Mm -hmm. um, because they were inbreeding. And he estimated them at two of his grades higher than contemporary Victorians. Um, so he believed that the classical Greeks were vastly more intelligent than than his own contemporaries. Um, he viewed Bushmen very favorably, for example, um, because he was nuanced enough to understand that they had particular skills, mm-hmm. which he greatly admired. And he'd met and, and actually lived among them for a couple of weeks out in the Kalahari. Um, so he had nuanced, varied views, which... Um, he adjusted according to how he, he saw the evidence. Um, of course, today that might be controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, but in his day, I don't recall seeing a single contemporary review that ever raised the least controversy
1: yeah. about anything Galton ever said about race. It just wasn't an issue in his context. Uh, so here's a question, and, and I mean, it's, it's, we'll we'll move past this after this question, but I do think it's an important one because I've heard this accusation. Uh, forwarded against him, which is I think Adam Rutherford has said this, for example, even compared to his contemporaries, Galton was an invidious racist, and like like it because you know a lot of people would say what you said earlier, we should understand him in context, and they would say, No, 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 even in his context, he was this iniquitous racist <laughs> is that that sounds like what you 're saying is that that is absolutely untrue.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely false, ahistorical, and uh, demonstrates an ig- demonstrates an ignorance of Victorian science. Um, so, actually, in my biography, I quote equivalent opinions from people like Huxley, mm-hmm. um, who could be a more eminent um, evolutionist than T. H. Huxley. Um, and the way to tell this is from the reviews, you know. So, one thing I, I was very um, Diligent about throughout the biography was for every publication of Galton's, I tracked down all the contemporary reviews, mm-hmm. surveyed them all, and then, um, you know, epitomized them in the biography to give people an, an idea of, of what his contemporaries thought of his kind of thinking. And, you know, in those days, it's, it's kind of fascinating because in those days, you could publish a magazine article and have that magazine article reviewed by <laughs> um, newspapers hundreds of newspapers just reviewing your magazine article so i had this tremendously rich resource you know we've scanned in all these newspapers now so it's it's actually quite easy to search for these reviews Mm -hmm. and a bit harder work to actually read them i do not recall seeing even a a single critical mention of galton's views on race it wasn't even raised right Um, not an issue right um So no, it's ahistorical. It's it's inaccurate, and it's again an example of projecting back into the past our own contemporary political concerns. Right. In in Galton's day, the controversial area was religion. Yeah, yeah. And he got into a lot of trouble over religion because he published a famous article called, you know, investigations into the efficacy of prayer. Right. He he tried to work (laughs) out whether prayer was effective by looking you need to see whether it made monarchs live longer because presumably they were paid for more often and therefore they ought to live longer if the prayer was actually working yes. and he could prove using facts and figures that they didn't really <laughs> live that much longer uh, uh, so he got into trouble over that even with in his own family
1: uh, but race no that was just never an issue right right so that that yeah i think that is very telling is that like even people who review him, nobody thought, you know, this is worth mentioning or deriding him for this. Also, I think it shows something about the way Galton's brain worked that he thought, you know, let's empirically study the efficacy of prayer. <laughs> that's just like a very, you almost want to say aspie, but like, you know, empirically oriented thing to do. Uh, let's, okay. So let's get rid of the Ray stuff. Let's talk about heritability because I think that's, I think you'd probably well you can tell me if you agree one of his great great achievements is conceptualizing you know nature nurture thinking about heritability attempting to measure and attempting to demonstrate that indeed traits are heritable behavioral traits mental traits whatever and in some sense making an estimate about it also understanding that twins might be a key to getting at heritability so what was what was Galton's understanding of heritability? Now, we don't have to talk about his attempted explanation of the mechanical explanation, because I don't think that holds up. But like, what was his general understanding of heritability? And then how did he attempt to measure it? Let's just take like whatever trait you want, one trait, pick it. And how did he attempt to measure this? Well, he started off with pedigree studies. So his idea of heritability is the common
0: sense one. Just as you inherit your height from your forebears, but in an approximate sense, so too you would inherit your mental characteristics, behavioral characteristics. And then immediately starts getting complicated when you realize all these special conditions that confused people about heritability for the longest time, which is you get phenomena like you might resemble your grandfather more closely than your father, all these confusing and confounding th- influences that came in. So immediately he had this brilliant innovation, which is to study pedigrees and study them in, in conglomerates, groups, to, gr- to group the data. And when you group the data, you, of course, you eliminate random error, mm-hmm. which allows you to see patterns. So he first of all went after the eminent, and he tried to ask the question, to what extent is eminence inherited? for which he had to find some kind of neutral definition of eminence, in which I think he succeeded fairly well. His point of view is that the judgment of posterity is pretty neutral. Um, it's hard to pass off as an imposter to generations of your successors. So he then looked at the, you know the family relationships. So if you look at a particularly eminent person like, say, Charles Darwin, and then look at ancestors and start climbing the family tree, He simply said, uh, he asked the question, what percentage of the forebears were also eminent? Likewise, what percentage of the descendants are also eminent? And he found a fairly, um, a quantitative relationship between the generations, um, which held up over multiple data sets and multiple ways of looking at it. And I think he established as early as 1869, that there was this quantitative relationship that... um, if you found that an eminent person like Darwin, he almost certainly had some eminent forebears, but the further you went up the tree, the more that vanished, mm-hmm. vanished quite quickly. So typically that the father would be eminent to some degree, but not as much the grandfather to an even lesser extent. And then it would just start petering out mm-hmm. like, like likewise with uncles and brothers, nephews and so on. And he investigated all those relationships um, in his day at tremendous feat. Um, Because finding that kind of data was hard. He had to spend hours and hours poring over biographical dictionaries and finding all these relationships, which it basically broke his mental health for a while. He had a Mm -hmm. tremendous breakdown as a result of doing that. So he started in 1865. He broke down for four years where he couldn't do anything. Um, And and there was a recurring problem related to some kind of underlying anxiety disorder. Um, But the point really is that he went looking after these relationships between um, groups of data, um, reasoning that there the errors would wash out and then he could find these overall patterns. And yes, from there, he went to twins. Um, The modern standard for twin studies, of course, is separated twins living apart, but that was only really invented in the 1920s. Maybe 1918 was the earliest mention. In his day, it was comparing identical versus non-identical twins, which were already known about then. Although they, they were confused then about the actual biological mechanism underlying that. But, but the, the intuition was sound, which is that identical twins ought to be more identical in behavioral traits and other traits than non-identical twins. And he gathered a substantial data set, um, finding those relationships. So the pedigree studies and, um, and so on, that was, that was his, his way of getting into what we now call behavioral genetics. Um but it quickly mushroomed because those mental traits sure they 're interesting but they 're they 're hard to measure in a non controversial way um so the whole project started mushrooming um eminence isn 't the final word on on intelligence testing, so he had to find a more rigorous definition for intelligence testing. What he came up with was reaction time, which is interesting in its own right mm-hmm. um he wanted some kind of physical precise measurement that you could attach a number to and IQ test had not yet been invented um but he found reaction time as his answer to that so he would um he would have people react to stimuli and then measure how long it took them to do that and he found this um weak relationship between um their scholastic achievement and their recorded um reaction times and it was another issue, by the way, in which he disagreed with Carl Pearson. Carl Pearson thought that the re- the, the relationship wasn't really there. Um, but it turned, again, Galton was vindicated because in modern testing, there is a substantial relationship between reaction time and how we measure IQ today. Mm-hmm. So you had to find all these different measures for these traits, gather the data. He went to Cambridge and measured a whole lot of students there. And... He attacked heritability from that angle. Family relationships: the more related people are, the more their their trait measurements um, should correspond to each other. Um, but all kinds of interesting things happen along the way when you try to investigate that. And one of those is a regression to the mean. Yeah. So of course we have the intuition that children should resemble their parents. But the, I mean, straight away when Galton went after height measurements. He was able to find that, well, there's regression to the mean for height. If you've got exceptionally tall parents, um, odds are you're not going to be as tall yourself. And he was astonished by that. It would never been noticed by anybody before. It seems counterintuitive. It's not when you understand the the distributions involved and, and so on, which he really pioneered. He figured out all the mathematics behind that. And, and published that in, you know, 1889. So he came at this from every angle, um, and using all the kind of tools that we still use today. Um, he's dealing with continuous traits for the most part, um, and he's using um, the tools that we currently call quantitative genetics, mm-hmm. um, distributions, and so on. Because he wasn't going after discrete traits, unlike um, his contemporary Mendel, he was never able to stumble on um, you know, laws of simple inheritance right. um, for those um, discrete traits, which Mendel had already figured out back in 1865. Galton's problem was he went after much harder traits. <laughs> yes. but, but here's the interesting thing. Today, his approach is the correct one. Mm-hmm. Because you can't really analyze a trait like intelligence in terms of Mendelian inheritance without going to extraordinary lengths in which you approximate the normal distribution by accumulating all of these little changes in genes, which is true theoretically, but no help to you in practice. To actually study the trait, you would take the continuous measures and use the tools that Galton pioneered for reasoning about that. Um, So, that's that's how he came at the problem, and um, I, I don't think we've really made major advances on his approach until we got to molecular genetics, yeah. um, today where we can actually sequence people and find the particular genes involved. Um, that's the, the first stage at which I think we substantially
1: departed from Galton's approach. So before getting to eugenics, just perhaps a, a listener is thinking, well... Okay, you're looking at these pedigrees, you're looking at eminence, but there's a problem. And the problem is environment. <laughs> right? Now, I, I just want to open this up for you, because of course, Galton was not adult, and he was completely aware of this. So how did he address that issue, the issue that well, maybe it's just that these people are raised by eminent others, and that, because they're in this more, I don't know, information-rich or beneficial, salubrious environment, they therefore go on to become eminent themselves.
0: Uh, he was well aware of that objection, and something that he ruminated over considerably. Um, so, I mean, of course, he um, the first thing to point out is he found this systematic relationship between degree of relationship and and um, degree of resemblance in eminence and explaining that in terms of environment is actually quite difficult Mm -hmm. Um, i deal with that in my biography at at length if you try to to understand that relationship in which you know things um, regularly decrease as you as you move in distance in what, what we call genetic distance um, and you try to explain that in terms of environment, you have to believe that somehow your uncle's environment um, is some predictable fraction of there's some right. predictable fraction of resemblance to to your father's environment. And if you go back to grandfather's, similarly, um, what you end up doing if you try and construct a theory like that is you end up constructing a theory of genetics in terms of environment in which all <laughs> kinds of miracles have to happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, and right. he, I mean he was aware of that uh, objection. Another interesting thing there, of course, I mean, he, one thing he proposed right away to to forestall that line of thinking is adoption studies. Mm-hmm. With adoption studies, there isn't any shared environment. Um, unless, again, you make this fanciful conjecture that somehow these adoptees are, are being treated equivalently because of reasons, like they look alike right. and stuff like that, where where you've lost all real scientific credibility when you start resorting to that. Um, so he approached it and, and he had a very sophisticated understanding of it. So to give you an example of that, a, a really modern development is appreciation of the fact that genes and environment become correlated. So when you talk about um, the environment someone is raised in influencing them, to a substantial degree, that's because they share genes with their parents and the, the genes of their parents are shaping that environment. Galton made exactly that argument back in 1873. Um, so mm-hmm. he was aware mm-hmm. of, of sophisticated analysis along those lines, which has only really um, become a major theme in behavior genetics in the last 30 years, maybe. Although Cyril Darlington was aware of it in the 1950s. It was maybe only in the 1980s that it started to become, um, get on people's radar. And and now it's a major theme, of course. Um, You can't talk about environments without genes because genes are part of those environments. They shape those environments.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, When people get treated a particular way by their parents, they also elicit that behavior through their own genes. Mm -hmm. You have problem children who will elicit certain kinds of parenting because they're problem children. They set things on fire. They steal. They assault their fellow pupils. Right. Um, so he was he was aware of all that analysis and, and he read carefully. It's amazing to see the the sophistication of his thinking on that topic. Um, by no means was he ever of the opinion that things are just simply genes and there are right. no other influences. By no means. Right. Um As early as 1873, he made the major qualification, which is it's a very profound one, which is you have to assume that the differences of environment are not so radical as to drown everything else out. Right. And I use this analogy in the biography. So try a thought experiment. Um, It's trivially true that the environment can affect people. Let's suppose babies are born, and as they pop out, they're struck on the head with a sledgehammer. Uh, A very disgusting world to live in, but it's certainly possible, and we could construct it. And then everybody would be equally dumb. Right. And the environment will have trumped everything. Yes. Everything else is washed out. It doesn't matter what their genes are. They've been struck on the head. They're brain dead almost. Um, So now everybody's equally stupid. You can imagine a possible world in which genes have no influence. Right. You can imagine that. So this is really an empirical question. What is the world we live in actually like? Right. Not... What other possible world could we live in Um, that thought experiment settles that once and for all, the world could be a different way. But the question is, what kind of world do we actually live in? What is the range of variation for these influences in our common experience? And that was pretty much Galton's analysis back in the eighteen
1: seventies. Um, people could have profited a lot more if they'd paid more attention. Yes. To that. Well, this is something that I remember thinking when I uh, when I read some of Galton's work, um, without the selective elliptical quotations, is he had a very sophisticated understanding of this. There's often this quotation people pull from him without adding the qualifications that he had which is basically, I I can't give it verbatim, but it's something like nature predominates over nurture, right? But it's like, if you look at what he actually wrote, he basically qualified it by saying exactly what you said, in cases in which the environment doesn't vary too much. So he was fully aware of this and he wasn't like some kind of, um, you know, intractable genetic determinist, right?
0: Right. Um, Again, he he was trying to reason about the world we actually live in. That's the essence of his qualification. Right. In the the world in which we actually live, it turns out that those environmental variations are not so extreme. And consequently, nature tends to predominate over nurture.
1: Yes. So we have to do this before we get to the last four questions, which is we have to talk about eugenics. And today, the very word just causes shudders of horror, I suppose. But in, I mean, it, it's useful to note that many socialists, including, say, George Bernard Shaw, were enamored of the idea of eugenics. And it's not in the abstract. I think if you just said it to somebody, they would be like, yeah, that that seems to make some kind of sense. So what was eugenics? What, what was Galton's idea about it? And did that become perverted? If so, like how did it become perverted and why does the very word cause horror today?
0: Well, I think it's, uh, important to emphasize and, and I, and I do this in the biography, uh, eugenics was central to Galton's thinking, um, from the very beginning. Um, really what he did is he read the origin on the origin of species and then a light bulb went on, which is, well, you know, um, we have people being, being, um, shaped by natural selection let's turn that around Mm -hmm. uh, and shape them by artificial selection which is the original analogy that darwin made he went from artificial selection to natural selection go back again and say to yourself how can we shape mankind as a result and if something like eminence is inherited that opens up all these intriguing possibilities that you might be able to create a tremendously talented race through selective um, breeding race here meaning the human race yeah and that certainly shaped galton's thinking from the very beginning he was forthright about it i was unable in all of the reviews that i read in any source to find anything remotely critical of that idea in his um environment mm-hmm. isn't that the amazing thing um a lot of the time people said well nice idea people won't ever do that um, right. good luck trying that good luck persuading people to marry on eugenic principles but there was never any moral objection Mm -hmm. not in the least um not even a single one um yes uh the the original left-wing people in around about from 1900 onward they were you uh eugenicists and my final chapter on eugenics or this one of the one of the final chapters deals with that extensively Mm -hmm. um it's much more thorough-going and deep-seated than people now appreciate. Um, often people will give the example of Shaw, but then Shaw was a bit of a clown on many issues. He liked to clown it up. He did. Um, but yes. the serious thinkers yeah. um, were all in there, including Harold Lasky, mm-hmm. who Gordon knew as a schoolboy, and the Webbs, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, who are really the royalty of the British left-wing establishment. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they founded the London School of Economics. Um, and which then became incorporated into the University of London, right? So uh, it, it was extensive. Mm-hmm. Um, I I traced the inflection point to about 1930 for eugenics. Um, that was the year in which Stalin banned IQ testing. And then Stalin turned against genetics, human genetics as a whole within mm-hmm. the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And it took many years for that to percolate its way back um, into the West And you can trace the way it percolated back in the career of a guy like J.B.S. Haldane, Mm -hmm. um, who I wrote a book about, and consequently I I understand his career very well. He was a leading left-wing eugenicist um, right through till about 1935. Mm -hmm. Um, He published a book called The Inequality of Man, which is very forthright about um, eugenics and reasons for doing it. Um, Hermann Muller, Another great geneticist um, was basically a Bolshevik, and even went to Russia to try and persuade Stalin to adopt eugenics and then um, got the fright of his life when he realized that Stalin was was, was probably going to have him executed, so he ran away and, and and came back to the West and managed to survive for a, another couple of decades that 's when the inflection point set in. but as I said earlier, you can trace through into the 1960s um, this lingering influence. Um, of eugenics, are all the leading thinkers.
1: Can I interject because this is interesting to me? So, so is your is your claim here that actually, like the turn against eugenics was motivated in some sense by the Soviets' rejection of human genetics? It was an important influence. Mm-hmm. It
0: was an important influence, and you can trace it in Haldane mm-hmm. and in Lord Hogben okay. and and many of those other left wing geneticists, um, Lionel Penrose. Who flirted with the communist party in the 1940s but then became essentially what we would call sort of a modern liberal um Mm -hmm. he's the guy who really um gutted the galton laboratory um at at ucl Um, their their thinking was definitely influenced by that it wasn't the only okay Mm -hmm. to be to, to be you know my own analysis is really that the one reason why eugenics fell into disrepute is because of antibiotics Really, uh, and, interesting. Uh, tremendous, in, yeah, tremendous strides we made in medicine. Okay. Up till about 1930, if you got sick, you were in serious trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, we no longer appreciate in the modern world what it was like to be alive in those earlier decades. Mm-hmm. One way to find out is to read Fogel's um, "The Escape from Hunger, Poverty, Sickness, and Death," um, which he published a few years ago. Just giving the facts on lifespans and who survived infectious diseases how many calories you could get and so on. That's why these ideas were so attractive to people like the webs. The only antidote to premature death, tuberculosis, and all these problems that they could see in front of them was um, hereditary resistance. Some people survived these things and other people didn't. You see it very clearly with tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. And... When antibiotics were invented and we made all these tremendous strides in public health, then all that changed. It became less pressing. Now, we, don't, we no longer think in terms of people um, just dying prematurely from awful diseases like that. Mm-hmm. We still have it, but it's receded to such a large extent that most people don't expect to get those problems. They expect to live to a ripe old age. Mm-hmm. And that changed the whole calculus. So I, I think that was um, an an important point. So point. That's right
1: interesting because would you at least agree that it seems to me the popular narrative is that um, people began to scold eugenesis and to denigrate eugenics and call it racist, et cetera, et cetera, after the horrors of the Third Reich were revealed. That's like sort of the common story is basically that's what did it
0: yeah that's not true I mean in the first place, eugenics is not really about race um right. and in galton's usage in the in the usage of the eugenics education society in, in the u k it was never about race mm-hmm. um because they didn't have any other races there um using race in the broad sense of you know white english people right. it was about improving the lot of people who lived in England, nothing to do with race mm-hmm. it was about just um eliminating as far as you could or or reducing hereditary disease. The modern understanding of this stuff is a projection back into the past again, and it's, it's politically driven. Mm-hmm. The use of the Nazis is just a propaganda tool. When you read the contemporary writing at the time, you will find, for example, famous declaration from 1939 at the World Genetics Conference, which is all about how important eugenics is, signed by every major geneticist of the day every single one of them was on that list of signatories. Mm-hmm. That was in 1939 when the Nazis were well in power Right. and it already started on their nefarious ways. It's also historically inaccurate to even think of the Nazis as eugenicists. Uh, it's the opposite. What they did was disgenic. Um, right. Eliminating all the most talented people. One of their stupidest moves. Eliminate all your great scientists. How stupid is that? Um, so it's a propaganda tool and Really, the 1970s is when it became dominant. Even through the 1960s, you don't really see that narrative there. It's not like in 1945, everybody mm-hmm. suddenly realizes, "Well, <laughs> the Nazis were terrible guys, and right. <laughs> they used this word eugenics. Therefore, we should never ever countenance eugenics
1: again." Right. And that's just not how it happened. Right. Okay. So so. Y- that narrative, in some sense, is like it's a, it's a way to associate eugenics with what we consider virtually the greatest evil ever to inhabit the earth to discredit eugenics.
0: Right. And, and and yeah, I mean, again, we must distinguish in Galton's thinking that there's two kinds of ways of going about this. You can do it via compulsory measures. Right. Or you can do it via voluntary measures where you encourage people um to breed well, as he put it, to mm-hmm. be well-born. He was very much of the second kind. Um, he believed in all kinds of measures to promote breeding amongst um, the more talented. And he believed he had an objective understanding of that, which might be disputed today, but that was his understanding. Mm-hmm. And doing things like subsidies for married couples, um, uh, sponsored uh, childcare, and, and things that many left-wing people would agree with today, um, were very much part of his program. The negative eugenics thing is is castrating people, sterilizing them, um, forbidding their marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a much less important part of his thinking. I wouldn't say it was entirely absent, because you know, by about 1909, people were talking about prohibiting certain kinds of marriages. But then again, today, certain marriages are prohibited. They so are. They've always been <laughs> prohibited. We don't yes. let brothers and sisters marry. Yes. We never have. We have an instinctive aversion to it. It's dishonest not to call that eugenics. That's exactly what it is. It's a limited form of eugenics. It doesn't extend very far, but it has exactly the same motivations. Um, Would Galton uh, agree to programs like running around and and castrating large numbers of people? That's hard to say, but I think not, Mm -hmm. um, because uh, as I'm able to retell in the book, um, he had many altercations with people who, who ran those sort of arguments in his day. And um, he was horrified by them.
2: Okay. And he mm-hmm. was horrified
0: by them for many reasons, not the least of which is they produce a feeling of revulsion in most people. Mm-hmm. But also because he, he thought them counterproductive. The last thing you want to do when introducing a new idea like eugenics, which is hard to get people to accept for religious reasons in mm-hmm. his day. Mm-hmm. The foreigners in these days were all religious, people like Chesterton, for example. Right. It's hard enough, without introducing all of this um, gross rhetoric um, of the kind that George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells and people like that indulged in to the full um,
1: right. when,
0: they, when they joined the eugenics movement, he was dead set against that. He didn't want to alarm people, and he never proposed anything like that. Um, so primarily he was on the positive side. Encourage people to have children um, try to get the intelligent to breed. Um, and to be honest, um it's hard to disagree with arguments like that. If you can do that <laughs> and you think you're able to make it work, right, who um, would disagree?
1: Yeah, well, this is I often ask people who express horror at the very notion of eugenics if they are in favor of getting rid of incest laws. I mean, because it's absolutely a form of eugenics. And not only is it a form of eugenics, it's a quite coercive form because it – I mean, I don't – I mean, presumably you could be put in prison if you violate that law.
0: And people are. I mean, there's a famous case in Germany where brother and sister married and had several children. They were put in jail.
1: Yeah. So that is quite quite coercive eugenics. So let's end before these four questions, just one last thing where you can – what do you think Galton's legacy should be? How should we regard him? I, I know he's un- unfortunately clouded by vituperation by and accusations, but what should his legacy be?
0: His legacy should be that um, he's remembered as one of the most remarkable men who ever lived. If you look at his range of interests, we've only touched on behavior genetics, but he made contributions to meteorology, African exploration, the study of fingerprints, Um, and many other fields he was a polymath that we should celebrate today because as he pointed out in the case of his own grandfather erasmus darwin people like that don't often come along and indeed that's how one of the ways in which he measured eminence how rare are these people francis galton is a vanishingly rare kind of person so you should remember your, your your great figures and, and and cherish their careers and try to understand what motivated them and how they mm-hmm. thought. Because when you read his thinking today, um, it's a tremendously refreshing experience because he doesn't have our modern constraints.
1: Yes. I, what I often think about is how celebrated and widely read somebody like Sigmund Freud is And then I compare him to Galton and I just think of the cosmic injustice, (laughs) you know, because Sigmund Freud's a bunch of flapdoodle, and Galton actually holds up, as you said. And I I mean, you're making a claim. I I don't have enough knowledge of Galton to make, but I'll, I'll defer to you that he was essentially right on almost every like major opinion he had, whereas Freud, you might say, was essentially wrong on every major opinion he had. But, but here's the curious
0: thing, um, up till about 1930, um, all of Galton's wildest dreams came true, almost to the same extent that Freud's wildest ah, interesting. dreams came true. Uh-huh. His, his initial founding of the eugenics movement in, in England caught fire internationally. Mm-hmm. It was like some kind of nuclear chain reaction. It spread all over the world, including Soviet Russia. They had an eugenics movement too, until 1930 when the leading figures were shot so uh, his wildest dreams came true and he, he, the way he, he wanted to start the whole movement was to turn it into a kind of religion mm-hmm. and he succeeded mm-hmm. for, for the longest time up to about 1930 it was an international religion um particularly in the uh, it was very influential in the united states where they used to hold these fairs where they would exhibit prime breeding specimens and so on of of, of the human race so to, to a certain extent he he succeeded beyond his wildest dreams but then it went into eclipse after that yes <laughs> um, and freud's eclipse took a lot longer i think freud's eclipse is justified very much so <laughs> eclipse, um I, I i can't see that that's justified at all
1: yeah i i share that view okay so our our four questions so who is i, I mean maybe we'll try to apply this to Galen, like who would you say is the sort of most forceful critic against your assessment of Galton, who's reasonable and worth reading? So if I have your biography, which I hope to get, because it sounds fascinating and I would love to read it, if I have that, whose whose arguments might I read to get like the other side of the argument? Yeah, it's a tough question, um, because
0: Now, if you want to hear our guests' answers to the bonus questions that we ask, then you need to become a paid supporter. You can do that over on our Substack page for just $6.99 a month or $69.99 a year. I promise you it's well worth it. Supporters also get early access to the podcast and to our special filmed conversations, which go up over on the main channel somewhere over there or down below. The link is, is always down below. And of course, if you liked this, then you will love our online magazine. You can check that out by clicking the link down below. And if you are so inclined, you can find the links to our Twitter and TikTok. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you in the next one. Anyone who's read it in detail and knows the background realizes that it's a tremendously dishonest Yes. But if you meet an... Albanian rocket scientist, you might want to revise that opinion. Albanian rocket scientists may not steal that many cars. Probably they don't (laughs) steal any cars at all. I'm sure if I said that at a university, they would throw Coke bottles at me or something. (laughs) Just because it's it's, it's unnerving to see the way that he understood how things played out and would continue to play out through the the succeeding century. Tremendous insight into human psychology and and the way
1: that political radicals think. Because he used to be one of them. Well, on that fun note, <laughs> let me say I really appreciated it. And can you tell just before we conclude? Can you tell people? I guess you said it's not published right now, but right. is there somewhere they can find it so they can go to Galton? Did you say dot org? Yeah, Galton dot org. You'll find all the supplementary parts. Okay. And if I'm not able to find a
0: publisher for this, I will make it available okay. electronically. Great. Um, one, one, just one last piece of information there. What's going to complicate publishing this is I will not accept censorship in any form, shape, good for you, (laughs) even the hint of it. Um, I would rather just release it to the world than accept some copy editor telling me what I can and cannot say about my subject. I've spent 20 years studying it. Right. Um, I
1: believe I've, I've gone to extraordinary lengths to be accurate. Well, let me say those are my standards. Let me say um thank you for doing so and I, I hope you do find a publisher because it deserves it.